Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you. And uh, as was just mentioned, we are taking a little break from our study through the Gospel of John. Um, it's been a wonderful study along the way, but uh, the timing is intentional. We're going to spend three weeks uh, looking at what is the church with the conviction that the Bible has a few things to say about how we should understand the institution of the church and our role within it. Um, the reason why that timing is intentional is we have a really significant moment coming up in our church life. Uh, we were planted about a little over two years ago uh, out of the next door mission of College Park with the conviction that the gospel will be carried further and faster with local self-governing churches that are able to reach their neighborhoods better than a regional church ever could. We've been meeting a bunch of milestones along the way, and we are getting to the point where the finish line is within, uh, within our sight. Uh, Lord willing, if everything goes well, April 2020, uh, we will be an independent, self-governing church. All our ministries will be run internally, and with that comes a, a new layer of responsibility. And uh, one of the hurdles we have to get through before we get there is a uh, something I know that many of you are interested in, the question of what will our church be called? Um, we actually have a congregational meeting on August 25th, uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, where we will vote on a proposed new name. And uh, that means after church, feel free to pick up a meeting packet. Um, I think that there'll be a rush on them right after the service because the new proposed name is printed in there in a letter I wrote, explaining the rationale and all the rest. So I uh, intentionally did not give that to you before we walked in. So you might actually pay attention to the sermon as a result. <laughs> So it'll lead up to an important meeting like that. Um, the hope would be that we would turn our attention to what the Bible tells us, of what a church is, and what that means for us as individual believers. If I, if I were to give you a one take-home for this three-week series, it would be this, that the church is not an add-on to the Christian life, that the church is actually central to what God is doing in this world. Church isn't an add-on to the Christian life, it's central to what God is doing in this world. Um, I pray that the Lord would, by his word, change our hearts so that we view his church the way he does. Now, before we turn our attention to the text, why don't we ask God's help in prayer? Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather and uh, an opportunity to come to kneel before you with open ears to hear what you would have us to hear this morning. I pray your word would instruct us. Would you cast our eyes much higher than we would naturally bring them? Would you help us to see that we, when we gather as your church, are much more than just a bunch of individual Christians? We are actually your witness to heaven and earth. Would you help us to find joy in that? Would you help us to be moved by the weight of that, to action, to live up to this calling? And would you remind us of the great drama that we are a small part of? Would you remind us of the gospel of Jesus? We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen. It was December 27th of 1932 when Radio City Music Hall opened its doors for the first time. It was the brainchild of John D. Rockefeller Jr., Right during the Great Depression, when people were really having trouble finding any reason to be hopeful or positive about anything, he decided he would build a theater larger than any other indoor theater in the world 
that would try to inspire and lift the spirits of the American people. This was his vision. He said, Radio City Music Hall was to be a palace for the people. It was intended to entertain and amuse, but also to elevate and inspire. It had the technological and architectural marvels to pull that off. Uh, it became a smashing success and still is to this day. It, it still holds the record for the largest indoor theater. And uh, the last numbers I could find, 300 million people had sat in the theater where there is no such thing as a bad seat and watched a show of some sort. That's a pretty impressive theater, no doubt about it. Uh, this morning in Ephesians 3, we have before us a, a very impressive theater of a different sort. The theater is actually history. The playwright is God. And he has the most unusual actors on his stage. They're unfolding a drama that no one would have expected. And they're being watched by the most unlikely of audiences an unseen audience of beings. It's a dramatic unveiling of God's purposes being shown to the world, and of all things, the church. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there, there are many times where I hear people talk about the church, and I, I get, think I get a little glimpse of how we just generally have a low view of church to these days. It was just a few weeks ago, we had a community cookout on the front lawn, and I was having a conversation with a visitor, and he told me how glad he was we were here, glad we, he was for our church being here, but quote unquote, I don't have time for church myself. Um, that, that sentiment is very pervasive, that people are spiritual, but they mistrust the institution of the church. Even among Christians, I think you can detect a, a low view of what it is that the church is about. Think about it the way we talk about when we're looking for new churches. We want a, a church that meets us where we are, a church where we feel like we connect, a church where there's lots of people that are just like us, that make it easy for us to make friends. Church is comfortable, that its worship expression is our particular favorite preference. Uh, we talk about checking out churches much the way you would talk about checking out gyms. Just give me the list of amenities, and I'll make the best possible buying choice. But that's not the vision for the church laid out for us in this passage. The church isn't to be some consumer choice that we make. The church is to be a witness to heaven and earth that we have the privilege of being a part of. We'll see that in two sections as we move through this passage. Two things are the theater of history that God unveils in, of all things, the church. The first, in verses 7 through 9, we will see the unexpected drama of the church. The unexpected drama of the church. And second, in verse 10, we'll see the unseen audience of God's wisdom. The unseen audience of God's wisdom. And all this, we'll see that God has a witness in this world for heaven and earth. And surprise, surprise, it is the church. Let's begin in 7 through 9, the unexpected drama of the church. Now, Ephesians is a very different book than what we have been studying, the Gospel of John. Um, it is a letter that was written, um, a letter written to be circulated around to churches. So it's not to one particular church. Um, it was written by the Apostle Paul. He was a church planter. And it was meant to be passed around to these churches he had planted along the way. And one of the distinctive features of Ephesians 
is it has this macro view, this really high level view of God's purpose. It's not just about how Jesus dying on the cross affects you as an individual. It's all also about this cosmic reality of what God is doing, this grand sweep of history. Now, uh, our passage before us is no exception. The witness of the church is part of this drama that God is unveiling within history. Uh, now, one of the features of a letter is very often there is a, uh, a flow of thought that you have to follow. Uh, Paul, in particular, likes to write these really ginormous run-on sentences. In Greek, it was not bad Greek, but in English, this would be a run-on sentence. Uh, in this case, verses 8 through 12, that's all one sentence. So we're actually not even getting through an entire sentence of this letter. Um, but, uh, and along the way, you need to pay very careful attention to different clauses and what they do. And there's one that's really relevant for us. Verse 10 the, is a, what's called a purpose clause. That would be the ideas he develops in 8 and 9. Are the, the reason for those ideas comes out in verse 10. So we're going to start in verse 10. Just briefly, we'll move back to 8 and 9. So he says in verse 10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. That's the reason for verses 8 and 9. So that of all things, through the church, that God's wisdom would be made known to heaven and earth. All right, now let's back up and see how we arrived at that purpose. What we see here is a very unlikely preacher preaching to a very unlikely group of people. Verse 8, Paul says, To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was the least likely person to be given the job of preaching the gospel of Jesus. If you know Paul's story along the way, he did not start off as a Christian. He started off as a persecutor of Christianity. He hated Jesus. He hated the people that were followers of Jesus and was giving his life to undoing the work that was being done on Jesus' behalf in this world. But then in one of those moments of grace that sometimes God just gives from on high, Paul the persecutor was transformed and turned into Paul the apostle, a preacher of Jesus. They would go out and herald to the world the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners. Now, as unlikely as Paul's role within the history of the church is, realize the people he was called to are just as unlikely. Look what he said in the second half of that verse, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not ethnically Jewish, uh, you are a Gentile along with the rest, the vast majority of us. But at, realize that up until this moment, no one thought that Gentiles would be recipients of God's grace, at least not in the way that God had intended. There was no one that was sitting around waiting for a great prophet to be sent to the Gentiles. There was not expected to be this integration between Jews and Gentiles into a new humanity, a new people called the church. I mean, if, you, if you use the old language of Ephesians, there is what's a, called a dividing wall of hostility. There's this great barrier between people on one side that were Jews and the other side that were Gentiles. And, and it was justified in some ways. The Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. 
They had been entrusted with the scriptures, the very oracles of God. They were ritually clean by what they did in the temple and by keeping God's laws. They knew their lineage went all the way back to the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Theirs were the promises. They were the ones God again and again promised steadfast love to. On the other hand, the Gentiles, well, they had no prophets send, sent to them any time recently. There was no expectation that the Gentiles would have any of God's promises applied to them. They were unclean. They did not worship in the temple. They weren't even allowed inside the inner courts of the temple. The Gentiles had no lineage that would give them any reason to expect anything from God. I mean, in fact, they were idolaters as far back as you went, worshiping the wrong gods. And yet, in what verse 9 describes as a great mystery, God's intention from the very beginning was to do something new to make a new humanity of Jews and Gentiles in one people, the church. In verse 9, he describes it this way, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. When Paul talks about a mystery, he doesn't mean as if some abstract philosophical thought that is unknowable, as if to say, who can know? It's a mystery. Now, that's not what Paul means. No, a mystery is something that was formerly hidden that God has now revealed. God's grand history, you might say the drama on the theater of history that God is revealing, is this new people, the church. Jews and Gentiles, those who go together like oil and water, brought together in a beautiful tapestry of grace. Paul says that all of this was done, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be, now be known. See, brothers and sisters, the, on the theater of history, there is a drama unfolding. And the climax of that drama is what Christ accomplished on the cross and the people he created in the church. We use that word church a lot. A lot of times we assume what it means. It doesn't mean a building. The word used in this passage for church, ecclesia, carries with it the idea of an assembly, a group of people gathering together. What this moment in history reveals is God has always been after gathering a people for himself that would come from backgrounds as different as you could possibly imagine. It'll be a people that's wonderfully diverse. His manifold wisdom, his many-faceted wisdom, will have people from all different hues, certainly of different ethnicities, definitely from different families and ages, people with different likes, different educations, people with different strengths, different weaknesses, all of them brought together into a beautiful tapestry of God's grace woven together by the very gospel itself. Now, there's a, a multitude of different applications that could be drawn from this, but for the sake of time, I will give you two. The first is realize that the church is not optional. It is essential to God's plan in the world. The church is not optional. It is essential to God's plan in the world. Uh, I, I like the frequent Starbucks um, 
I'm not a great coffee aficionado. I usually keep it very simple. Just a Pikes with enough room to put a little cream in there. I, I can order this without much trouble. I don't freeze up when I get to the front trying to remember all the little ins and outs of my order. Um, I did have an experience where I was a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I was given the Starbucks app and there were so many different options of things you could add into your drink and different types of drinks. I actually had trouble just finding plain coffee in a certain size cup. Um, now, essential to Starbucks is this idea of coffee, right? That's really what it's about. There's a lot of different add-ons that you can put in. And, and very often in the Christian life, I think even unintentionally, Christians think of the church as just an add-on to the many other things that are a part of the Christian life. I think about it along the lines of the things that we hope to find in a church. I want a church that's passionate about the same causes I'm passionate about. I want a church with people that are easy to connect with. Usually that actually means with people that are in the same life stage or in the same experiences in life that I have. I want a church where I can feel like I'm being ministered to. Usually that means I, I, I actually want my likes to be the same likes of the, that group of people. I want a church that's comfortable, not too much mess, not too much stress, somewhere I can just go and be filled. Like None of those things are bad on their own. Like we should want to have meaningful relationships with each other. We, we certainly should want to be able to worship without great stumbling blocks among us. And yet, when one of those preferences isn't met, too often there's a tendency to just cut and run. I'll just go to a different church that meets all those criteria. It's a bit like an actor that's just making cameos in God's theater. Oh, I'll show up for this particular show. It sounds like a good one, but uh, the next four or five I won't show up for. Maybe I'll go to a different theater. Grace them with my presence. And yet if the Christian church is actually the way that God is revealing himself to the world, then that should not be the mindset we have. We, we shouldn't be so individualistic. Even as our individual needs are important, they're actually not the primary reason we gather. We gather for the cosmic reason of how God is witnessing to the heaven and earth, the reality of both our neighbors watching, and as we'll see in a moment, even cosmic powers intently watching to learn about the God that we serve. So first indication, first implication is church isn't an add-on. Realize that the, your local church, it's actually central to what God is doing in this world. Second implication, if we are the actors on this grand stage of history, Realize that we don't get to write the script. God is the playwright. God is the one that decides the message that we should be proclaiming together. And therefore, we do not have the freedom to decide we're going to proclaim a different message or show some other value other than what God lays out for us in his word. One way you can say this is we can never get over the gospel that brought us together. Right, think about it. The whole reason that the church is together is because of this reality of this story of what God did. We were such bad sinners that we were so far away from God that we could never find our way back. In fact, the only thing we would ever find if we did was a God full of justice and wrath. 
for how we've rebelled against his will. And yet in his love and mercy, he sent his son to die for wicked rebel sinners, to pay their price on the cross, to rise from the dead, to make them into a new people, to bring them together into this new body, and to now in that body reveal what sort of God it is that they serve. That means that everything from the message that we preach from the front every Sunday to the message that maybe we're not articulating, and yet surely we are preaching by the way we live with one another in our church body. It can never be anything but the cross of Christ. Oh, I mean, there are, is a temptation to feel like, oh, I understand what Jesus did on the cross. Let's, let's move on to something more relevant, something uh, more advanced in the Christian life. And yet the same author, Paul, Say, say that he, he resolved to know nothing except the cross of Christ. God forbid we ever grow tired of hearing the good news of Jesus preached. God forbid we as a church ever grow bored with the reality that we are sinners saved by grace, now empowered to live for the Jesus that saved us. In the church, we are to both proclaim as well as to live out the gospel again and again and again. That is how we are the witness that God intends for us in this world. Well, what theater, what good theater is there without an audience watching? That leads to the obvious question, what is it, who is it that is watching this witness God has in the world of the church? That brings us to our second point in verse 10. The unseen audience of God's wisdom. Paul says in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. No one would accuse me of being a man of the arts. Um, That'd be a kind way of saying I'm not very cultured. And uh, Precious has tried mightily, uh, taken me to operas and plays and things and you know, some of us just have our weaknesses, and I'm just not wired that way. But I did have a lot of friends along the way that were into theater, especially in high school. And uh, so I went to several of their plays, but I heard from them a lot of times the lead up to that, those plays. And one of the dynamics they would tell me is that there's something special, even electric, about performing in front of a full house. That when it's half full, maybe you still are able to go through your lines and it's still meaningful. But when there's not a seat left and you can feel the eyeballs on you, there's just an electricity to the theater. Now, again, I've never experienced that firsthand, but I understand it to be a true experience among actors and people who do that sort of art. I think there's a parallel to how Christians are to experience the gathering of believers Sunday to Sunday. We are performing, in a sense, in front of a packed house. There are a group of beings fighting for a front row seat, watching intently, every eyeball on us, looking to see what it is we will do and what it says about the God we will serve. Paul tells us that they are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see that in verse 10? 
Now, some people are, have trouble interpreting what that means. Uh, there are some commentators that think it, it's referring to kings and rulers in the world, be like saying the most powerful government officials and the like. I, I think this is one of these places where, it, having read the whole book, it will actually help to define terms for you. So if you have your Bible, flip to Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12, just forward a page most likely. And Paul fleshes out what he means by this idea of rulers and powers. It's probably a section you're familiar with. Often we study it when we're studying about spiritual warfare and prayer. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Pretty obvious from 612 that Paul's not talking about earthly kings or government officials, that he is talking about the powers behind the powers, the spiritual beings behind the earthly powers that are constantly, even in an unseen way, guiding history on its way to its destination. Uh, this is not the only place in Scripture that gives us a little hint into this realm. When you go home this afternoon, you can uh, look up Daniel 10, verses 12 through 13. Daniel 10, verses 12 through 13. Daniel's praying in deep turmoil and prayer. And after a time of not, uh, seeming as if his prayers are going unanswered, an angel shows up, and this angel tells him that he was delayed because of someone called the Prince of Persia. And it, that this angel was only able to finally accomplish his mission once another angel came and freed him in some way. We, again, it's mysterious. We don't know exactly all the ins and outs of this. There are parts of the Bible that do give us a hint of this reality that the, these spiritual, very powerful beings exist. We often refer to them, refer to them as angels and Demons, angels being those spiritual beings in service to God. Demons being those whose mission is to oppose God and all that he does. These angels and demons are immensely powerful. Whenever they show up, people are afraid. They fall down on their face. They feel like they're going to die. And it seems as if scripture teaches that somehow they are influencing world events, even in ways that maybe we are unaware of. Every now and then, God gives us a glimpse into this unseen realm. In this case, there's one detail that's really important, though. It's that they are intently watching. They are watching the church, and they are watching what it says about God. One more cross-reference for you. If you look in uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 12, 1 Peter 1, 12, the same sort of idea comes out, talking about how God had revealed his plan and how that there's someone that wishes that they could know what we know, that, that is namely angels. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's the important phrase, things into which angels long to look. So while we can't say everything that the Bible says about angels, and there's lots more that we might be interested in, but the Bible doesn't say about angels, we can say this much. They are intensely powerful beings 
spiritual, unseen, and they are watching us. Both those in service to God and those that are his enemies, they are watching the gathered church. And God is witnessing to these cosmic powers, he is witnessing to these spiritual beings, telling them of the greatness of his wisdom in that very church. John Stott said it this way, thus the history of the Christian church becomes the graduate school for angels. We are being watched, brothers and sisters, not just by our neighbors and the world around us, though surely we are. We are in a theater that is standing room only, with every eye watching intently the drama unfolding before them. And through it all, somehow the message is being preached that God is wiser than anyone could have ever imagined. And that's seen in his church. Now, this has some implications, as you might imagine, for how we do church together. Let me just suggest that this changes those Sundays where you feel a little ho-hum about coming to church. You know, there's a Sunday every seven days, um, and oftentimes it feels like uh, church is rather unordinary. Uh, You come to the same building. Sometimes you sit next to the same people. Very often you're hearing the same preacher. You're reading from the same Bible. You're hearing about the same Jesus, maybe even singing the same songs very often. You can be tempted to think, well, no one would notice if I didn't show up. Maybe I'll just mail this one in. I'm a little tired. I'll, I'll just kind of sit there and passively not really participate. And yet, if you're actually on stage, if you're an actor with a full theater watching this very moment. Every single Sunday is an opportunity to glorify the God you serve. Do you realize even on the Sundays where it doesn't feel like anything amazing is happening, there's actually a cosmic witness coming out from every single local church. Every single one of these gatherings is an opportunity for us to show what our God is really like when we join together in one song and lift our voices to God, when we sit and listen to the word of God and actually consider what it means for our hearts, when we put an arm around a struggling brother or sister and encourage them with a word from scripture, when we give of our means to support the ministry of the church, even when things get messy and stressful, when we, when we actually forgive each other because we've been forgiven by Christ, all of that is showing the wonderful wisdom of God and the way he wove together this messy group of sinners into something beautiful called the church. Brothers and sisters, I'm with you. There are some Sundays where it doesn't feel like something eternally valuable is about to happen. And yet if we trust what God says more than our own feelings, Let's realize that every single Sunday, every single Sunday is a drama unfolding that the very heavens and earth are watching. It shows them what our God is like. Realize another implication from this is that the church must remain a place that is set apart from the world. Now, if you think about a theater, you need to be able to know who the actors are 
And who are the people in the audience? If there was no distinction between the people watching and the people on stage, then the drama of the theater would lose its punch. Now, we certainly want to be, at all points, uh, loving towards our neighbors and welcoming. I certainly hope if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, that I hope you feel welcome. We, we don't want to go out of our way to make you feel uncomfortable. And yet, there must be a difference between the church and the neighborhood around it and the world around it. The whole reason we are here is to be a witness to our God's wisdom. And we can't do that if we are indistinguishable from the world around us. Now, that certainly gets applied in a myriad of different ways around the church. Uh, that, that requires great wisdom as you apply it to things like your worship expression or even the architecture and decorations of the church. It certainly, though, ought, ought to be expressed in our conviction that there should be something different about our gatherings, something otherworldly about them. A sense that it's not just a, a group of people that are together because they live close to each other and they're all the same. No, there should be a sense that there's something unexplainable if God does not exist and is not who he claims to be in our gathering. And yes, that should, at times, make people feel uncomfortable. Now, I know that, again, it requires great wisdom to know when we are being, uh, <clears throat> when we are being uh, unnecessarily difficult, um, when we are putting up barriers to people hearing the gospel of Jesus. And yet there's also a ditch on the other side where we so much want to reach our neighbors that we lose the distinctive nature of the church and we lose the witness that God intends for it to be. Now, as a church, I hope that we find joy in the reality that we are actors in God's great drama that he's unfolding on the theater of history. That even though church is messy and difficult, that we would see there's actually something so much bigger than us happening that we get to be a part of. And that would actually encourage us when maybe it doesn't feel like church is quite meeting us where we desire for it to. There are going to be always going to be, no matter what church you're in, there'll be people that are struggling. There'll be people that have difficulty finding friends. There'll be people with great trials in their lives. No amount of rejiggering the forms of ministry will ever fix all those things. But if we have in our hearts, first and foremost, the church isn't primarily about us. It's actually about the witness of our God. And that even in the mess and the stress, that God is showing his wisdom to the, everyone that's watching. Yes, even those angels and demons in an unseen realm. Friends, there is a, there's a joy to be had in that Sunday to Sunday sort of perseverance. Let me just suggest that one application of this that I think we need to hear is we ought to make church a priority. Um, it, statistics on this are not particularly encouraging. Christians are coming to church less and less frequently than they used to in ages past. I hope that doesn't remain the case for our congregation. Uh, not just because I like a full church, but because it's what God intends for his people. That we are to be a witness that gathers together as a primary reason that we're in this world, that we find joy in that. As we think about the witness of a church, I'm reminded of the history wall that we have up. Um, if you haven't stopped by and seen it, it's right out the back of that uh, uh, door on the left there. 
Um, I'm so thankful that there has been a faithful expression of God's uh, drama of the church right in this building since back in the 1970s. And you know, we are coming to a juncture as a church where we ourselves will probably add a new name to that history wall in some way, shape, or form. Now, I, I don't know what name will end up there for certain. We'll find out after the vote, I guess. But I hope this remains the same. That since the 1970s forward, as long as there are believers gathering in this building, that this place sees itself as God's drama unfolding, as a display of his wisdom to anyone that would watch, that we see ourselves first and foremost as God's church, the way he's revealed himself to heaven and earth. No matter what name is on the sign or what name is on the history wall, that's a goal all of us should have. As long as God gives us here, I pray that's true of us. Let's pray.